I saw this t-shirt online that I knew it. The second I saw it, I had to buy it. And it has this silhouette of Wonder Woman, and underneath it, it says, My Wife. That is honestly one of my favorite shirts because of the truth of what it talks about. It That is my wife. I, when I look at her, man, she is Wonder Woman. She is my hero. I mean, I would not be here. I would not be the person who I am today if it wasn't for God putting her in my life. And in fact, she is one of those hidden heroes inside of our church. See, I, you know, my position as a pastor and as a preacher, you know, it's a platform position. People tend to see me on a regularly and I try to get her to come on the platform and to share, even bring a word sometimes. But it's, uh, you know, it's just her thing. I'm getting there with her. I'm talking to her. But with on her side, she just loves to. She just feels that her gift is behind the scenes and in a more personal upfront manner. And she, like many other people, are these hidden heroes inside of our church. Now, not only do we have these people all around us like that, that make a difference and tend to go unnoticed for one reason or another, but there are people in the Bible, in fact, there are women in the Bible who tend to get overlooked, not because of, well, for maybe a lot of different reasons. A lot of times these women tend to be the, to play a subplot and a sub character in a larger story, yet they are mentioned, and a lot of these women are mentioned by name, because the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that their story was told. And again, this is, a lot of times when we see things in the Bible, you know, we we don't see it, and it's right there. You know, there, there may be things right in front of us, and we don't notice. It's just like me when I try to go look inside of my wife's purse. I cringe every time she tells me, go find something that's inside my purse. I, I cringe every time because I struggle. I mean, it is when I look inside of her purse and I'm trying to find things, I can never find it. I'm moving things. I'm taking things out. I'm analyzing with flat, what everything. And she, you know, I would say, babe, I can't find it. She's like, it's in one of the pockets. And I would look for one of the pockets and I would go through all of them and it seems like every time I would go through a purse I would find more pockets it's weird how the her purse tends to evolve like that I don't get it and I cringe again when I have to say the statement babe I can't find it it's not here I don't see it I cringe because that's when I know she's gonna walk up put her hand inside of her purse she doesn't even have to look. She could be looking at me directly, making eye contact, fiddling around in her purse. Boom. There it is. And she'll put it right in front of me and say, see, I told you it was there. When I, when I see her do that, man, all I want to do, all I want to tell her is, man, that's witchcraft. I'm telling Jesus. Okay. That, that's not real. That can't be. I don't know. I don't know what kind of Harry Potter, Leviosa kind of a spell you just did in order to like conjure that because I, it was not there. I didn't see it, but apparently it was. So, oh, well, I guess it's my fault. Hidden in plain sight. Well, there's these women that are like that, that are just hidden in plain sight, that the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that they don't go unnoticed. Now, when we look at some of these women, and particularly the story today, which is a very difficult one, we have to be careful because we tend to read these ancient stories with modern eyes. And that kind of makes it hard to process. 
and it makes it hard for us to truly understand the context. And now there's one thing that is, and, and this is a part of our Christian heritage and a part of just our faith, which is I'm so honored by, and it makes the most sense. And it's this, when we look at, especially when we look at one of these situations today, a very, very messed up situation for a woman back in ancient times. And we, if you're a student of history, you know that in ancient times, man, it wasn't, you know, it was not good for women compared to even compared to modern day. And, you know, yes, there, there could be, there are instances even now where you can argue and you can say that there still needs to be more advancements in regards to either equality of status or of just how people are treated, you know, they're, they're, that's always going to happen. There's always going to be mistreatment of people, no matter who you are, because of the sin that exists in this world. Yeah, we've come a long way. We've come a long way compared to ancient times. But one thing that is, that is so clear that we see, that, which is the history and the heritage of the Word of God, and the history and the heritage of, of Judeo-Christian faith, that there is nothing, nothing can compare to what the Judeo-Christian faith has done to elevate the status of women in regards to equality and rights. Nothing. Now, for a lot of people, you may be listening to me right now, and you'd be thinking, uh, I don't know if I agree with that, bro. I, I don't think that can't be right. That can't be real. Well, just like my wife's purse, it's there. You just got to look for it. The evidence is there. You got to look for it. And we're going to look at it right now. We're going to look inside of the Word of God to make sure that we don't miss one of those women. In fact, there are, which is really interesting, over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about six different women. And we're going to uncover the story of six regularly overlooked women in the Bible who God used to uniquely communicate his truth. Four of them are actually in Jesus's genealogy. They are his great, 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 great grandmothers. And two of them are women that play an important role in his life. And one of those women that we're going to talk about today, her name is called Tamar. Now, Tamar's story is so unique and weird because of its location. The, the story actually seems to be interrupting a larger narrative about Joseph. See, in the book of Genesis, Moses is giving a recap of obviously the story from the beginning leading all the way up to Israel's enslavement in Israel. And it's getting close to the climax where here comes Jacob having his 12 sons and then there's Joseph and then we're introduced to Joseph. We're introduced to the conflict inside of the family between the other 11 who hate the youngest brother, Joseph, because the father favors him because he's the son of his beloved wife, Rachel. And so the other ones have, you know, just whatever in regards to clothing, yet Joseph gets that bright cloak of many colors. And then we see because he's just, the brothers are just so fed up with him. They find the brother looking for them out in the field, out off as they're, you know, tending to the sheep and the flock. And then in Genesis 37, we see them coming up with a plan. The brothers are so sick and tired of their brother that they want to kill him. And they plot to kill him and just frame, you know, just kind of say that, oh, it was an animal that had killed him just to be done with his annoyance. And Judah, one of the sons actually was like, no, let's just throw him into a pit in hopes that it was a Reuben in, order, in hopes that later on we can save him. And he was going to try to, you know, protect him. But then Judah throws this wild idea out there. Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, 
who was the head of the tribe of Judah, Judah comes up with this idea in verse 37. It says, yo, how about we sell him? What good is it if we just kill him? Let's sell him and then tell our dad that he died. So we still get rid of him. And in the end, we're all a little richer. That's Judah's idea on how he wanted to treat his little brother. And then right before we continue on to find out what happens to Joseph in slavery all the way until he becomes a second in command of Egypt, the story seems to be interrupted with this weird drama-filled story of Judah and Tamar. And then right after, which is in Genesis 36, and then boom, right at 37, back to Joseph. Now, the location seems awkward. The location seems weird, but it is not done by mistake. In fact, we see a little bit in Genesis 36, we see Judah's turning point. You know, in 37, he was selfish. He's selling, he's willing to sell his own brother to make a profit. In 38, Judah spirals further out of control. But by the end of it, he has a turnaround. Yet, as we follow Judah and his character development, Tamar is introduced. So we're going to look through this story, and I want you to be able to, and we're going to find just why God includes this lady, Tamar, in Jesus' genealogy. In fact, she's the first woman in the Old Testament that is mentioned by the Gospel of Matthew, by the, Matthew, uh, by the, the writer, obviously, Matthew, who wrote the Gospel, who gives a genealogy from Abraham to, Je- to Jesus, and he mentions this woman. Tamar. So let's look at the location. So here we see right at the beginning in verse 38, it happened that at this time, after Judah had sold their Joseph and they went back, told Abraham, hey, our brother is dead. It happened that at this time, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. This is going to be a buddy, his best friend here. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. Now, one key detail here is that we see that Judah it has left his family. Judah has left his family to have some fun. He meets up with a new buddy, new wingman, and then the story develops. So that's the location. So we're taking a quick pause from Joseph, looking at the story before we come back. Now, let's look at the situation. The situation is Judah has left his family. He's now married a Canaanite woman, which is against what Abraham and Isaac, uh, his fathers and his father's fathers, grandparents, what God had instructed, say, do not intermix, do not mix with those Canaanites, because God was trying to do something unique, and they needed to be aware. You know, I, Abraham did not want Isaac to marry a Canaanite. Same as well with, every, with all of the other brothers of Jacob and Esau. That's what Esau did. And now here, Jacob's own son, Judah doing the same thing, following this pattern. So here he has a wife, and they, she, bore, she bore him a son, and his name is called Ur, E-R. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called him Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore the last son, when she bore him. So here's the situation. And now he has three, one, one wife, three kids. So, hey, there's been some years. We know the math on how long it takes to have a kid. So it has been years since Judah has left his family. And let's see what his family looks like now. Let's continue on with the situation. 
And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So here she's introduced. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It's weird to say that. It's weird to read that. But Jesus, God, put somebody to death because he was just that wicked. And now we don't know what he did. Now, I have an assumption, which I'm going to share in a minute. We don't know what he did, but he was that wicked that God said, no, your time is done now. Let's keep reading because it gets better. After this, the Lord killed him and put him to death. Then Judah says to Onan, so the brother, the second, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is called a Levirate law. Now, Judah, during this time, again, he has left his family, he's left the traditions, he's kind of doing his own thing, and he is going by the customs of the land. And now this was not, this was not something ordained by God, this was not God's idea, but this Levirate law, when we look at it today, where if a woman has, um, is married, has no kids, and the husband dies, the next of kin, which could be uh, the next relative in line, it could be a brother, a younger brother, a cousin, or even the father. The, the father of that child, or the father of the son who died. Any one of those individuals, by law, had to take the woman, impregnate her, so she could have a son. That was the idea. Now, again, we look at this, this ancient context with modern eyes, and we think, oh my gosh, that's horrible. And now, yes, it is. It doesn't make sense to us. Now, but you got to understand that back then, for them, with their understanding, this was compassionate. Now, obviously it isn't, it's kind of interesting. It's crazy. But for them, in the context of the story, this was an act of compassion because there was nothing worse than a woman who was a widow and childless. You, the, your quality of life was, it was indescribable. You did not want that. That was the lowest of the low to be a widow with no kids. So they came up with this law and this tradition. This was an ancient tradition that many cultures had applied and they lived by. And said, well, out of compassion, let's let the, a relative impregnate her, have a son, so that way the son she could be taken care of. Now, of course, <laughs> we can come up with a whole lot more better ideas than that, but that's what they came up with. Now, if you read this, this law sounds similar to what Moses would write later on, that what God gave Moses the law. And in the law, which we call the law of God, the law of Moses, which is the the Ten Commandments, all those things, this Levirate law is adopted in. God allows this law to come inside of the law of God, not because it was good. In fact, this idea actually comes with, in the Moses' law later on, it comes with greater restrictions because what God was trying to do was educate people who had no understanding of the sanctity of marriage and trying to elevate that and try to preserve marriage. In fact, um, sex laws, any form of, you know, there's so many different laws regarding sex and and intercourse and marriage and the preservation of marriage. It just adds on to this in hopes and the idea to educate people, to bring them along. And then Jesus comes because Jesus, if you read the gospel, has a conversation with scribes about this levy right law all those years later. But Jesus then took it to another level of forever abolishing that and truly presenting what marriage in the eyes of God was supposed to look like. So 
anyways, back to the story, just so you can understand the context there. So here we see that Onan is supposed to, according to the customs of his people, take over and try to, out of compassion, see if he can impregnate her for so she can have a son. So here is what happened. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as, so as not to give offspring to his brother. I guarantee you, you did not wake up today thinking, I'm going to listen to Pastor Tito's sermon, and dude's going to be talking about semen. No, I know. I know. But hey, it's in the Bible. It's in there for a reason. Now, let's look at this story, because what is Onan doing here? Why, what is he doing? Well, first off, why is he doing this act? Why is he doing this deceptively? Because Tamar doesn't know. Tamar doesn't know what he's doing. Tamar doesn't know that he's, uh, you know, just kind of wasting his situation out there. He doesn't know. What is the deal? First off, Onan has his own kids. And he knows, man, if I get this girl pregnant, because the culture at the time was the firstborn was the favorite. And they tended to get most of the inheritance. And they tended to take over. And so Onan knew, yo, my brother didn't have a kid. So that means my kids are next in line to get the, the, the firstborn blessings and the, and the firstborn inheritance. If I have a kid with this lady, then that kid's going to get it all. My kids are going to get nothing. So he said, you know what? I'll, I'll be her husband. She can be my wife. And he was willing to have all the sex without the responsibilities. He was refusing to father that child. Now this is, look what happens here. Onan knew the offspring was not his, so what did he do? He, he, he refused because he didn't want to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And God put him to death too. God put both brothers dead. Done. Man, I mean, and, and it was like, whoa, what is, I mean, this begs the question, can God kill people? If God is a good God and God has never sinned, then how can God kill people? Well, first off, you got to understand that killing is and murder is completely different. This is not premeditated. This was not done in anger. This is not done in wrath. This was not done out of passion, okay? Unruly passion that God could not control himself. This is almost the equivalent of somebody coming into my house and if you are gonna be a threat to my family my wife all right then i have and i feel like her life my life our family's life is in danger beef in god's eyes i can take you out without a problem all right so let's not let's not go there i right? you don't want me flexing like that let's not go there but in God's eyes, the form of either self-defense or if I see someone, if I see someone violently hurting someone else to the point that they could die, and, and in my efforts, I subdue the dude, and, and in the process, he dies, I'm absolved because I was trying to save the woman if I used reasonable action. Now here, we see a woman, Tamar, who's being sexually abused. Tamar, if without a child, Tamar will be worse than homeless. She will have no other option but either to starve, kill herself, or sell her body as a product for the rest of her life. Used and abused. That's her future. She's thinking that Onan 
this man is supposed to keep up his side of the deal. And he's lying. He's deceiving her. And God refuses to, for this woman to be sexually abused in the way she is. And God steps in and kills him. Now, not only of his selfishness, I mean, you can see he was willing to have all the sex use her for his pleasure, yet deny her her rights. Now, this is me. I do. This is my guess. But I wouldn't be surprised if Onan, if the first boy, the brother of Onan, so the oldest, Ur, was violently abusing Tamar. I wouldn't be surprised because we see that God had done this here. And this one act. Now, I think Ur's was more complicated than this. That's why the Bible doesn't mention it. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm just assuming. But I'm, this is my guess. But I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be surprised God has, if God took both of these individuals out because they were both abusing this woman, this poor woman. Now, this doesn't happen often. There's only a handful of times that we see in the scriptures that God kills somebody directly. And it's rare. But every time it happens... God is trying to communicate. He's trying to scream a truth and a reality to us. And here, God is defending the abused. He is defending the abused. He's, he's, he's coming after and uh, coming after Tamar and coming for Tamar's defense. So let's see what happens now after both brothers have now died. Then Judah, verse 11, says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, uh, hey, well, listen, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house till my till Shayla, my son, grows up. Okay, look, um, my kid's a teenager. You know, he barely got some peach fuzz on his cheeks. You know, let, 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 just wait a little bit till he grows up, and then you can have him, okay? Then you can have him. And then the Bible says, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in his father's house. Judah was suspicious. Judah was suspicious. He didn't pray to God. God, why is my kids dying? He was suspicious. He's saying, yo, whoever sleeps with this girl is dead. So uh, I'm not giving her Shayla. Because, again, Judah, being selfish, sold his brother so he can make some money. Now Judah does not want to offer Tamar, the third son, according to the right of their customs, because he doesn't want his third son to die, meaning his lineage is cut off. Judah's being selfish. So here's the, this is the situation. We have a used, abused, and now abandoned woman. And now, here comes the deception. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was, for, was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, who we mentioned in the first verse, in verse number one. So Judah's wife is dead. And now he is going to this area, he's going to Timnah with the sheep shears. So we don't know the time. We don't know how long. But apparently he got over the death of his wife pretty quickly. And now here goes Judah with his buddy and they're going on spring break. All right. Listen, the over in Timnah, when the sheep shears would gather together, they we know according to customs and law that this was they they would do this around the springtime. And this area was usually a very male dominated kind of an event. All right. You got a bunch of dudes out there having their, you know, having their fun, doing whatever, you know, bar hopping, doing this, doing that, sheep shearing, whatever else. All right. It, it was a spectacle. OK, it was spring break. All right. Gone wild. That's what it was. That's what it was. And so here Judah buries his wife, head takes off to spring break. Man, again, super selfish And then right now. He goes with his buddy Hira, and now here's what happens next. Here's the deception. 
And when Tamar was told, hey, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is a city, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So Judah had deceived Tamar. He said, hey, when my kid is old enough, you'll have him. And Tamar's realizing, uh, it's been some years. Okay, maybe back then he, you know, maybe had some acne and some little peach fuzz on his cheeks. But dude got a full-grown beard and a mortgage, okay? Uh, he has a receding hairline. This guy is an adult. And Tamar is really, yo, Judah is not, is denying my rights. He is denying my rights. And it, and it isn't right. So Judah, so now here Tamar wants to take things into her own hands. When Judah saw Tamar, who, you know, remember she was dressed up sitting at the entrance of the city on the way to Timnah. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing what he's getting himself into, Judah proposes to sleep with this prostitute who happens to be his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, Tamar doesn't turn the offer down because she's trying to survive out here. So she says, uh, okay, but uh, what are you going to give me? You know, this ain't free. And they haggle on a price, the scripture says. Tamar asks for Judah's signet ring and his staff. Two things that identified Judah. You know, the signet ring was a, a ring that had the symbol of the man, a symbol of the household. And if you used it, it was like a modern day signature. So if you had it, then you can claim and take authority, you know, make decisions based off of like as if you were that individual. She claims that as a down payment because Judah says, look, I'll give you a goat. But until I get the goat, she says, I need a deposit. So he asks, she asks for these pieces. Judah gives it to her. They have sex and she gets pregnant. The scripture says then she gets up, she goes back home, puts on her widow's clothes, like if nothing happened. Judah sends his buddy Hira to try to pay off the prostitute later on, can't find her because she took off. She says, where's the cult prostitute that was here? And they said to Hira, uh, there's no cult prostitute here, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Judah then says, well, okay, just let her have my stuff. And they wrote it off. But then the scripture says in verse 34, here comes the redemption. That's the situation. That's the deception. Now here's the redemption. Three months later, someone tells Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant by immorality. And then Judah declares and says, bring her out then to be burned. According to the culture, this act was worthy of death. This was a dishonor to the family. To do this for a widow to be impregnated in any other way other than according to law and the customs okay so this was messed up but this is according to the customs so he's this dude snitches they find out three months later she got a baby bump and so he's snitching judah then says bring her out and let her be burned rough rough answer he's ready because this is an embarrassment judah is selfish three months later oh your daughter-in-law's pregnant uh-oh nope we got to kill her because again selfish pride how he is perceived according to his people according to the others so then verse now let's pick it back up now we caught up and so in verse 25 as she was being brought out she sent word to the father-in-law by the man to whom these belong i am pregnant and she said please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff she was like oh judah hold on before you do that i just want you to know uh who i'm pregnant by the person who owns these things so um 
Judah, duh. does this look familiar? I feel like I've seen this before. I don't know. I mean, to I don't know. You you tell me. You you're a smart guy. Why don't you take a take a look? Judah realizes that's his stuff. He realizes that that's his kid that Tamar is carrying. And now look what Judah responds back. Judah calls, when he sees this, he says then in verse 26, Judah identified his possessions. He identified them, those things. And he said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her my son, Sheila, I denied her her rights. She's better than me. And he did not know her again. She was not burned. She was not murdered. He never slept with her again. But it was, you know, change of tone. Change of tone with Judah here. So we see the, the redemption that even though Tamar took extreme measure, measures in order to survive, she was allowed to live. And then here comes the revelation, which is the culmination, actually, of everything. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Listen, this is ancient times, low-tech you know, strategy, okay? If you had identical twins, there was no way to do DNA tests or anything like that. You can't tell who's who. So whoever stuck his hand out first, I don't know, they would, in this case, they tied a scarlet red, crimson red cord on his wrist. And something very weird happened. After they tied it and said, this one came out first because his hand shot out first. But then he drew back his hand and behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out and with the scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was Zira. What an ending to the story. And then, boom, we pick up right where we left off with Joseph. Uh, what a, a crazy ending where we have one kid halfway born, the other one, uh, we don't know what happened. Either the guy got too cold and went back in, or the other brother grabbed him by the heel and said, uh-uh, dude, and leapfrogged his brother out. And now what the second was technically fully born first, and then the first was then second. Crazy ending to the story. But what's amazing is this little detail. Tamar delivered two boys who would deliver her. Where eventually, where previously two males had failed to be men. Her, the brothers, Ur and Onan, two men abused Tamar. And now here, God is giving her two men to save her, which is crazy. It was a pretty, pretty cool little detail there. So then what's the application? What's the big idea here? Because this just looks like a hot bowl of mess. And then we go back to Joseph. You can almost feel like a uh, pastor. We can kind of like edit out verse 38. It doesn't seem that important to the narrative, but it does. You got to look for the meaning. It's actually right there. In fact, the location of the story is strategic. It does not interrupt the flow. It actually gives us an important detail. And, and here's, here's kind of the main idea that we see from what Moses is trying to communicate, what will led by the Holy Spirit to include this, is that Tamar was far from perfect. That is true. Tamar was far from perfect. Yet through her story, God shows us that he can use imperfect people to fulfill his perfect plan, to be a part of his perfect 
See, that right there is worth the interruption. That right there is worth the interruption in the story of Joseph. And then we look at the situation. Well, what was the situation? There was a used, abused, and abandoned woman that was would be eventually left for dead. Now, we got to understand that today, there are modern-day modern day Tamars are not far. Modern-day Tamars are not far. There are women. There's men too, but there are women who are used, abused, abandoned, all around us. Who's going to fight for them? Here, God fought for Tamar. And he asks us to participate and do the same. They're not far. They're all around us. They're in our churches. They're in our neighborhoods. They're in our families. They're at our work. They're at our school. Modern-day Tamars are not far. And it bothered God. It bothered God to see women used, abused, and abandoned, and it should bother us, and we should take action. We should step in and do what is necessary. That's, that's our modern-day situation. This still happens today. The deception... The deception is, well, on this case, and especially the deception of many women, is that there's a lot of people, a lot of women who are, and men too, who are deceived, thinking that they can't be vocal about what had happened because of the shame that it carries. See, Tamar had to wear the widow's cloak, the widow's clothing, which was an, a form of identity. It was, it was shame. It was, it, it, was, it was not a good look. Well, a lot of modern-day Tamars... Men and women, but, but there's a lot of modern-day Tamars who are wearing, not a widow's cloak, but they're wearing the cloak of shame, of fear. What if no one believes me? What if I make it, what if I, if I let this out and I say it and then it becomes a bigger problem? The, the deception is to hide behind your hurt. There's a lot of people who are hiding behind their hurt. Afraid. Afraid to speak, afraid to say, afraid to not be believed. And so many remain silent deceived to think that they have to settle and then there's others who are so deceived and they think that there is no hope so then they surrender willingly themselves to further abuse there's a lot of women out there who who you know go into in fact they're deceived into the sex trafficking industry because they were promised one thing and yet they were given another deceived some think, well, I have no other choice, so might as well make some money. I have no other way of surviving. Listen, a lot of us are deceived when we look at Tamar at first. We, we, we read the story of Tamar, and we sometimes, many of us, we see a vindictive, manipulative woman. But uh, listen, do not judge Tamar, because she was just trying to survive. Yes, she was a little manip. Yes, she was manipulative. Yes, she was sneaky. Yes, she lied. But you have to understand the culture. She was just trying to survive. If she didn't get pregnant with a son, she was as good as dead. And listen, uh, if Tamar would have been discovered, if Judah would have found out, uh, wait a minute, Tamar, is that you? Judah could have had her murdered, killed, according to the law, according to the customs. You know, and, and, and what if she would have lost the signet ring and couldn't, did not have the proof that it was Judah? She could have died. She risked her life in order to survive. And there's some who are, who are so desperate and they're doing things that are sometimes destructive. 
deceived because they think that there's no other way. They think that there's no other way. Makes us wonder, and may should make us wonder, because, see, Judah's actions caused Tamar to react the way she did. I wonder how many people are, they're, they're making poor decisions because they feel like they have no hope or no other way because of the actions of others or the non-actions of others. Well, then there's the redemption, though. This is the good part of the story. See, God had mercy on Tamar and Judah. God does not kill Judah like he did his two sons. Why? Because something changed in Judah's heart. He repented. He repented. And Tamar was absolved. She was not, she, you know, was allowed to live and have her kids. Now, I want you to know, this is an amazing thing that God had mercy on the both of them because they didn't just commit adultery. They lied. Both of them lied. Judah was obviously the more the bad guy in the scenario. And they both committed idolatry. Because remember, Judah called uh, Tamar, or the prostitute, a cult prostitute. Cult prostitutes used acts of sex in demonic worship, in the temples of idols. All right? I mean, imagine going to church, and that's that was the church service, okay? That was the church service. It was just one fat orgy. That's, what, that's probably what Judah got himself into that day. And God had mercy on all of them. He forgave them. Amazing. And in fact, when we look at Judah too, here we see a, a, an interesting change of heart. Because Judah, when he found out Tamar was a sinner, right? Judah wanted the sinner judged. Oh, she did what? She needs to die. Today, right now, dead. Judah wanted the sinner to be judged until Judah realized he was the sinner. What did he say when he found out he was a sinner? Oh, wait, she's more righteous than I. Listen, I know when we look at difficult stories like this, we look in the news and we say, man, God, why couldn't you make a better world? Why does this have to be? Couldn't you have just, you know, and, and Ravi Zacharias has a great quote. And he says, listen, those of us, if, you, if, if we wished that God had created a better world where this, where bad things wouldn't happen, we unwittingly wish ourselves out of existence. Just like Judah, he was willing to say, man, that's messed up what she did until he realized, whoa, there's something in me too. If, you, if, if she's going to be burned, then so must I. We're all like that. We're all willing to point the sins out of everybody else. That person should get what's coming to him. And then when it's our turn, oh, hey, hey wait, let's, hey, let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Mercy, please, mercy. Let's just see, man, God had mercy on all of them. And then the final revelation, which is that weird story of the, the births, I mean, which honestly is not by accident. Because here we see the firstborn take his hand out there, tied with a scarlet thread, boom, came back in, the second pop, hopped over. And the second became first, the first became second. Listen, this is just like the first Adam. The first Adam entered the world, and, and not only did he, through him, sinner, enter the world, but then the second Adam, Jesus, came. And he leapfrogged us because he was better than us. And now here's Jesus, the first true firstborn of all creation. And here's the rest of humanity. And those who place their faith in Jesus have that scarlet cord around our wrists, which is the blood of Christ who redeems us. 
And in fact, what's crazy about that story, that that person, Perez, who's the firstborn, the one that leapfrogged his brother, he is how the lineage of Jesus continues. When you read Matthew, we see that Tamar, that the lineage of Jesus went from Abraham to Jacob, to, well, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to Tamar, to Perez. And then the lineage continued. Judah and Tamar, this is, this is Jesus' family tree. <laughs> Jesus, hey, Look, if you thought your family had some nuts in it, Yo, Jesus' is, uh, Jesus's family tree is on another level. He's on another level. But again, we see that God can use imperfect people to fulfill his perfect plan. Now, here's, here's the bottom line for today. That what we see in Tamar is that God loves us just, as, just the way we are. What we see in Tamar is that God loves us just the way we are. And that's good news for us. If God can use somebody who's like, Tamar was not a believer. Tamar was not a Jew. She had no faith in Yahweh, no faith in the God of Jacob, of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob. Yet God still loved her. Yet God embraced her into the family. And she became a member of the family of God. And because God loves us just the way we are, we then ought to love others just the way they are and reflect the same, treat, the, treat others the same way Jesus treated us. So if there was two applications that I can pick out, it would be this. We need to take care of our Tamars and we need to take after Tamar. Again, we need to take care of Tamars, those who are used and abused, abandoned all around us. We ought to love them. We need to look for ways to love those who are overlooked and unloved. They are not far. We need to love them. But at the same time, we can take after Tamar in some ways. See, Tamar's turning point came when she took off her widow's clothes. Now, yes, she exchanged them for a prostitute's outfit, which is not what I'm telling you. But we need to be willing to take off our old clothes. Like Paul would say many times in many different letters and exchange it for something better and clothe ourselves with Christ. We need to take off whatever the cloak of shame, regret, sin, whatever that the enemy has put on us. We need to drop our old dirty rags and be clothed in Christ. Listen, there is no such thing as perfect people. God loves you just the way you are. There's no such thing as perfect people or perfect churches. Yet the church is the perfect place to find peace. A spirit-filled, Christ-centered church is the perfect place to find peace. Because it is through Christ and the Spirit that God can embrace us as one of his own the same way he did with Tamar. Now, in the same way Judah looked at Tamar and said, man, she was more righteous than I. We ought to look at Jesus and say he is more righteous than us. See, where Judah failed and where Tamar failed and where you and I have failed, Jesus has never failed. See, Tamar deceived to claim Judah's signet ring and staff, which was authority. Jesus died to claim the keys of death and hell, which is true authority. 
Tamar exchanged her widow's clothes for a prostitute's clothes to save herself. Yet Jesus exchanged his heavenly robes for humble clothes of a carpenter to save humanity. Tamar risked death to make things right for herself, yet Jesus died to make things right for everyone else. Tamar's actions were vindicated after three months, yet Jesus' divinity was vindicated after three days. Tamar gave birth to sons who would deliver her, yet Jesus was born to deliver us. Tamar did the wrong thing to get what she deserved, which was justice. And Jesus did the right thing to give us what we don't deserve, which is salvation. Tamar took matters in her own hands to prosper and survive. And Jesus took nails in his hands for us to prosper and thrive. Jesus is more righteous than us, and I'm so grateful because it is in him that we can be righteous when we clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness covers our sins and our faults, and God then extends mercy to us through faith. I think it's cool that Paul talks about that we can clothe ourselves with Christ because when you think about it, with outfits, and we do studies all the time nowadays, that our clothing actually impacts our mood and our behavior and how we you know, think about ourselves. There are certain outfits, and you I'm pretty sure it's true to me, it's true for you, that there are certain outfits that just make you feel better about yourself. They improve your mood and all these other things. This is why we have uniforms and or standards or this or that. So this is why kids care so much about that outfit for the first day of school, or why when you go on a date, you gotta make sure you're wearing that certain thing because you wanna feel good, you wanna look good. Well, let's take after Tamar. Listen, don't hide behind your hurt. Rather, clothe yourselves with the righteousness of Christ and experience the confidence that comes with knowing that you are forgiven and an adopted child of God. That's worth putting down the old clothes and putting on the new. Listen, Tamar's heroic efforts to survive doesn't mean that two wrongs can make a right, but it does show us that God can take our wrongs and make them right. So let's take after Tamar and in faith, cast aside our garments of shame and secrecy, handing over all things to Jesus as we clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ, who loves us just as we are and transforms who we are in him.